We are starting a new series today that we will be doing for four weeks called Come and See. And these are some of the first words that Jesus speaks in the book of John. And really, this is just a series where he invites people to come explore, to come investigate, to come see what life with him looks like. So if you, I mean, I'm especially happy to do this uh, these next four weeks. If you're not a Christian, or maybe you're somebody that has been done with church for a while, and you're kind of just coming back to check things out, we're so uh, glad that you're here. And these four weeks, man, this, this is probably the best four weeks that you could come all year to just kind of explore what is Jesus all about? What is it that he says? But maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, then this is still great to really kind of re, just kind of go back to the beginning and say, man, what is this Christian thing? What is this all about? And so this is the series that we start this week, and uh, I'm excited uh, to, to begin this series with you. I'm, I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, jump, into, jump into the sermon. Father, thank you for some time to spend together today. And thank you that uh, we can learn from you. And wherever people are in this room, where, wherever they are in their just kind of faith journey, I ask that you would speak to each of us today, that you would help me to communicate uh, your word and the message that you would want us uh, to hear today. So open our hearts and our minds and our eyes, free us from distractions and uh, fantasy football leagues and, and whatever else it might be to just listen to your voice. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, about 10 years ago, a little longer than that, Steve Jobs in 2007 introduced the iPhone for the first time. And he, if you, if you remember this, this was a while ago, uh, some of you were, you know, probably too young for that or too old for that either way, but uh, he introduced it by saying that he's going to introduce this revolutionary device. Uh, but he, he talked first about, Hey, we've got three devices to introduce to you. We've got a new, a new iPod. That's a touch thing. And people are like, Whoa, a touch iPod. And, and we've got a new phone that's going to radically change how we communicate. And people are like, Whoa, this is crazy. Two devices from Apple, not just one. Then he said, three, we've got a revolutionary internet communication device that's going to change the way we do the internet. And people are like, no way, that's wild. And then he said in Steve Jobs fashion, and it's all one thing. And people went crazy and it was the iPhone, you know. And that's what happened. And, and it really did change the world. I mean, if you think about it, the iPhone changed the world. And it, it changed how we do so many things. It changed how we do business and commerce. I mean, now you hardly ever say, oh, I need to pay you back. Here's some money or let me write you a check. We have Venmo. It changed how we do transportation with Lyft and Uber and things like that. It changed the whole kind of, the whole app, like whether it's Instacart or Uber or Lyft or all those kind of sharing things. There's things you can rent your car and there's things. I mean, it changed how we do business and commerce. It changed how we do dating with Tinder. It changed how we do, um, it changed, I mean, really just, I mean, even change the internet. People, I mean, I know some of you probably do this. I still do once in a while, but people don't really even use the internet anymore. We use apps that are able to just go straight to that particular thing that we are interested in. I mean, it changed social media and how we connect with each other. I mean, it really, the iPhone changed everything. It really did. It revolutionized the world. But I, but I want you to think about something for a second. What if I, I mean, just imagine I came up to you with an iPhone and I said, and maybe you'd never seen it before, right? You've never seen the iPhone before. Maybe you're um, from some, I don't know, primitive part of the United States, uh, North Dakota or something like that. And you've never seen, a, <laughs> you're sorry if you're from North Dakota. I know you guys got oil and money and that's good. So, um, but you come, well, you come with, a, you come, if I came and I said, look, this could change your life. This could change, this has changed the world. And this could literally change every part of your life in so many ways. And I hand it to you, but it's not charged. And there's no power. And you would look at it and you would go, maybe I can do something with this. Maybe I can throw it at somebody if they're annoying me. Or I could use it as a doorstop or a fly swatter or something. But, but if, it's, if there's no power... If there's no battery, that, that's not really going to do anything, right? You've got this revolutionary, world-changing thing in your hand, but it wouldn't actually do anything. And so maybe you're now going, what is this sermon about? Are you selling battery packs or, or what's, gonna, <laughs> what is, what is this, what's happening right now? But here's why I bring this up. As I was just thinking about this, this is the kind of closest analogy that I could think of as it relates to Christianity. You see, the Bible says this about the message of Christianity, which is called the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. 
to everyone who believes. That it is the power of God. He says, look, there's this message of Christianity and it is the power of God. Something that could absolutely radically reorient, change, and reshape every part of your life. That, that look, I, even if you don't believe, I'm just saying that's what Christianity claims. It claims to be this power that can radically reshape every part of who you are and every part of your life. That is the claim that Christianity makes. And if you look at history, you do see something did happen. Something happened that when Jesus came and and the church got started, the world did change. The world changed radically in so many different ways from the birth of of Christianity. Now, let me just say this. You're probably not asking, what is Christianity then? What is the message? That's probably not a question that you had coming in here. Maybe it is, but if you're a Christian, you probably didn't come in thinking, man, what is Christianity today? I hope that gets answered for me. Or even if you're not a Christian, you're probably maybe hoping to hear kind of some uh, spiritual truths or something, but not necessarily, what is Christianity? But it's really important to talk about this, to think about this, because if we miss what Christianity is, we miss the power that it could be in our lives. It's a form of it, like an iPhone. It's a form of it that you might go, okay, this is interesting, but if it lacks the power, then any claim that Christianity makes to say, this can totally change your life, you'd go, well, I don't know. What's the the power? And so today I want to explore what the message of Christianity is is because there's a lot of misunderstanding on what it is. Maybe you've been a part of the church for a long time. Maybe you grew up in the church, and yet I talk to people all the time that grew up in a Christian home or grew up around Christianity that still really do not understand what the power, what the message of Christianity is. Or or maybe you're somebody that's exploring church or you're not a Christian, and you still really, I mean, based on what you kind of see out there or in in the news or just kind of caricatured in movies, we really so many times don't really understand what the message of Christianity is what Christianity claims to be, which means we miss out on its power, the joy that it says it brings, the the resources it says it brings into your life, the revolution that it can bring. So that's what I want to do today is explore what the message of Christianity, the power that Paul says what it is. And maybe for you, this is going to be the first time that you actually connect to that power, the first time your battery actually get charged. Or maybe for you, maybe you've been a Christian for a while or you've been in the church for a while and it's kind of, you need to reconnect and go, what is this power? What is this message? So that is what we are talking about today. And to explore that, we need to see what, what is a Christian and what change it brings and, and how you get this power into your life. So let's just start with this question. What is a Christian. If we want to understand the message of Christianity, what, what's a Christian? And listen, there's many ideas out there on what a Christian is. Maybe even just think right now in your head, if you were to say, what is a Christian? And you were to define it, what would come to your mind? See, if we miss this, then we've already started off on the wrong foot. We don't really, it's like putting an Android charger into an iPhone. It's not going to do anything for you, right? Because Apple changes their cords every 10 minutes. <laughs> <clears throat> So what is a Christian? There's a lot of ideas, but let me tell you what it's not to start with. A Christian is not someone that believes in God. I mean, there's the Bible itself even says that even demons believe in God. So who cares if you believe in God? I mean, 95% of America claims some sort of belief in God. It doesn't make a Christian if you say, man, I believe in God. Or, Or even if you would say, I believe in the Bible, that doesn't make a Christian. I mean, the Bible, there's a lot of people that Uh, could say that they believe in the Bible, but that doesn't mean that they are a Christian. Or maybe it's somebody that goes to church, or maybe, you know, I talk to a lot of people that say, I've kind of gone to church my whole life, or I've been a Christian my whole life. I grew up in the church, but a Christian is not somebody that goes to church. Christian isn't somebody that is a part of a church. And let me even go further. A Christian is not somebody that loves God. Maybe you say, okay, let's, let's, it needs to move a little bit more from just belief or belief in the Bible. or Okay, I, I love God. That's what makes me a Christian. A Christian is not someone that loves God. 
A Christian isn't a person that would say, in my life I'm seeking to establish a relationship with God. Or, or let me move even closer to probably how many of us would think about it or define it as a Christian is not somebody that loves others. If you think the core of Christianity is that you love your neighbor or that you love people, if you think the core of what Christianity is, is I love people, that's the core of my faith, that is not even close to the heart of what Christianity is. Or maybe you think what it means to be a Christian is somebody that is trying to be like Jesus or to do the things that Jesus did. And this is not what it means to be a Christian. Don't worry, I'm not, the whole sermon's not going to be telling you what it is not to be a Christian. But I just want you to think about a lot of the different ideas that we think in our minds of what it is to be a Christian. If we miss them, if we miss what Christianity is, we miss the power. If you miss what the message of Christianity is, you will be disconnected from what it claims to be able to do in your life. So this matters. So what is it? What is Christianity? And I'm going to look at a book in the Bible written by a man named John. And he's going to tell us a story about one of the first people that kind of came to investigate Jesus. And this person was a religious leader, a Pharisee. But he was, he was a leader among basically what would be the church at that point. He was a religious Jewish leader. He taught the Bible that they had. He instructed people in the Bible that they had at that time. And yet, it says that he comes to Jesus in the dark and the man writing the book of John, John, the man writing this, often uses symbolism in his book. And the reason that he would point out that Nicodemus, who's the man we were going to look at, comes to Jesus in the dark is to help us understand something, which we can see in the story, but he's even just kind of adding some poetic language to it, is to say he's missing something. To say there's something he doesn't get. He's in the dark about some things. Though he's a religious leader, though he's been around the Bible and around church and around things of God his whole life, he's missing something. He's in the dark. There's something he doesn't understand that thus is holding him back from what he could experience. And Jesus is going to explain to him and lay out to him what it means to be a Christian or what it means to have life with God, what that means. He's going to lay this out for him and thus for us, this thing that can actually change our lives. So let's look at this passage together. It says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, this just means teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he comes to him respectful, he comes to him seeking to learn. He comes to him saying, we know that you're a teacher. I, I believe I've seen you do some powerful things. Jesus was healing people and changing water into wine and some cool stuff that he's saying, man, I, I think God's with you in some way. And he doesn't ask a question, but Jesus is going to give him an answer because there's a question implied in here, which is just, what, what's this, where's this coming from? What's this power? What are you teaching? What do you bring? And here's what Jesus says. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, what is a Christian? Here is what Jesus says. Here, here's what Jesus explains to Nicodemus. This thing that can bring power into our lives and reshape everything. He says that someone, and here's the language that Jesus uses. He says, someone that can see the kingdom of God or someone that enters into the kingdom of God. And now Jesus isn't talking about heaven when he says this. Jesus is talking about life with God. That is what the kingdom of God is. It's life with Jesus as king. It's living life here with God as our king. What would that look like? 
mean, imagine we've got so many political problems and disagreements and, you know, two-party system with people fighting and disagreeing and all this crazy stuff, right? But imagine if Jesus was king. Imagine if Jesus just said, I'm the king and life here looks like life with me as king. This is what Jesus says. If you want to see that, if you want to experience what that is, if you want to enter into that, if you want to be a part of that, if you want to live in life with God as king, Jesus says, here's what it is. It's somebody that is born again. It's somebody that's born again. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, think about a little baby that's just born. Think, <laughs> oh, Think about a little baby just born. Uh, many of you are, have recently had babies, or some of you are, uh, many of you, not some of you, half of you are pregnant, and, um, <laughs> and, uh, and some of you might have a baby during this sermon, you know, <laughs> or at the bouncy house outside, we'll see. Um, but what Jesus says is, think about a little baby. <laughs> Jesus says, think about a little baby. He says, this is what I want you to understand life with God is like. It's being born again. But think about a baby. Did they do anything to be born? They didn't do anything. A baby didn't say, I'd like to be born today. A baby didn't say, I, I would like to come into this earth. I think I would like human existence. A baby didn't do anything. A baby is just something happens to it, right? A baby is born. Something happens to the child. It's not that the child says, I would like to do something or I would like to become something. It's just that something happens to it. Something happens for it. And Jesus uses this image to tell us what life with God is like. Jesus uses this image to explain to us what a Christian is. What is a Christian? And Jesus says it's somebody that is born again. Now here's what this means. It has nothing to do with what we do but something that's been done to us, something that's been done for us. If I, if I said, what makes a baby? You don't say, well, they did this and they did this and they did this. You say, what makes a baby? Well, two people came together, right? You, and you say, and they did something that created a human, that life was given. This is what Jesus says a Christian is. This is what Jesus says life with God is. Someone that sees, enters into God's kingdom, enjoys life with God. It has nothing to do with what we do, but something that's been done for us. Now, here's what this means. Being a Christian is not defined at all by all the different good things that you do, whether that's loving your neighbor, whether that's loving God, whether that's making a difference in the world, whether that's being kind or living like Jesus, all of those are good things. I'm not saying don't do those things. They're all good things. But being a Christian has nothing to do with what you do. It has everything to do with what you have received. It's an identity that has been given, an identity that has been received. This is why when the Bible talks about life with God, when the Bible talks about what it means to be a Christian or the Bible talks about God's kingdom or entering into life with him and relating to him, the kind of language that it uses has to do with what's been done to us. Here's some of the words the Bible uses. Adopted. It's not something you do. something done for you. Or reconciled. Or redeemed. Or justified. Or transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Or cleansed or inherited. It says you've inherited this position with God now, that you've been washed, that you've been saved, that you've been renewed, that you have been delivered, that you have been created, a new creation, that you've been sealed, that you've been predestined, that you've been regenerated. The Bible uses all of this language, and you know what it has in common? ED, which means something done to you, something done for you. When the Bible talks about life with God, when it talks about what it means to be a Christian, the emphasis is on, here's what's been done for you. You don't adopt yourself. You don't redeem yourself. You don't wash yourself. You don't save yourself. You don't create yourself. You don't regenerate yourself. When the Bible talks about what it means to be a Christian, it says, here's something that's been done for you. Here's an identity that's been given to you. So, do you want access to life with God? Do you want the joy of what it would be like to live life with God? 
Do you want to experience what it would be like to be in God's kingdom and have your life shaped by that? Do you want to experience a power that claims it can reshape and reorient your life more than the iPhone can? It starts here with understanding that what it means to be a Christian is somebody that has received a different identity such that it's like you are born again. So what does this new identity change then? If this is true, if, if there's a new identity, if that's what it means to be a Christian, what would that change? How would that bring into our life the joy I'm talking about and a different kind of power? What, what effects would that have? And, and there's all sorts, and we're going to be talking about them over the next four weeks, but I just want to focus on one today that I think is an important and powerful piece for us of what would happen, what would happen if at the core of your life, what would happen if in the very center that you are operating from, it is something's been done for me, not I have to do something. What would happen? So let's talk about this one example. Many of us, many of us, or maybe I think I could probably go as far as to say all of us, at different times in our lives, but many of us feel some sense of shame, some sense of guilt, some sense of failure in our lives, some sense of inadequacy. And it's hard. I'm not minimizing that in any way. We feel, and you may feel it persistently, just a constant feeling of this, or you may feel it in different waves when life is hard and you particularly feel like a failure in something, but we are unsure about ourselves, unsure about our looks, perhaps. Spend time looking in the mirror and thinking, man, I'm, I'm getting older. There's wrinkles there that didn't used to be there. I don't look as good as I used to. Or you look at uh, other people's news feed and Facebook and Instagram and feel, man, they look better than me, and how, how can I look like that and, and feel unsure? Or unsure of your career, perhaps. Maybe that's in the sense that you compare yourself to others and the careers that they have, and you feel, man, I, I'm not there. I wish I had that job, but I'm kind of embarrassed to tell people what I do. Or I'm not as far along in my career as I thought that I would be. Or maybe you're just feeling like I'm not doing a good job in the job that I have. And you show up to work and are constantly reminded by your boss or coworkers of really failing at your job or feeling that way. Or maybe it's just in general what others think of you. You're unsure. Do people like me? Do my friends actually care about me? I, I, I thought I heard my name. Were they talking about me? What was it? What was said? Is my house nice enough? Is my, are my kids nice enough? And maybe it's the roles you have in life that you feel unsure of and that you feel some of this sense of shame or guilt or inadequacy around that you feel like, man, I'm trying to be a good mom, but I just don't know. It seems like everybody else is doing better than me. I'm trying to be a good dad. I'm trying to be a good father. I'm trying to be a good husband. I'm trying to be a good wife. I'm, I'm trying to be a good friend. But I, you just feel this sense of I'm not quite measuring up in it. Or maybe it's your own kind of spiritual growth that you look at your life and feel like, man, I don't know, I'm just the same. And not much changes, and I just kind of feel I'm still here. And other people are so much further along than, than I am. We, many of us, if not all of us, and I, again, would say all of us, at least at some point in our life, will feel these feelings of shame or guilt or failure, or inadequacy. And the line that is often given to help that, the line that is often given to address that, is something like this. Don't care what other people think about you. It doesn't matter what other people think about you. It matters what you think about you. Don't compare yourself to others. You only need to compare yourself to yourself. Don't worry about the image or impressing other people. It just matters what you think about yourself. Or the 
advice might go something like this. As you experience shame and guilt and feelings of not being worth anything or feeling inadequate, oftentimes the, the advice, the counsel given to help in the middle of this struggle that we all face is to tell you, you are enough. You are worthy. You are okay. You are awesome. You can do it. And the problem with that, the problem with addressing the issues that we face with trying to bolster our self-esteem in some way is it doesn't work. Now, I want you just to listen for a second because if you're in the middle of this and you have been trying to work on your heart with this, you might go, what are you talking about? It doesn't work. That's exactly what works. I know for many of you, you know it doesn't work because you've tried it for many years and it's tiring. But I just want to explore some things with you to help because there's something better that we can have that can actually help. You see, the problem is it doesn't work and there's actually tons of research and studies and science around this. This is just an article from Harvard Business Review. It says, to succeed, forget self-esteem which is the opposite of everything that we have been taught in our NBC, the more you know, you know, PSA advertisements when you were a kid in the middle of your Saturday morning cartoons. It says this, and of course, you must be perfectly awesome in order to keep believing that you are. Listen to this, and this probably describes many of your experience. You must be perfectly awesome in order to keep believing that you are, so you live in quiet terror of making mistakes and feel devastated when you do. Your only defense is to refocus your attention on all the things you do well, mentally stroking your own ego until it has forgotten this horrible episode of unawesomeness and move on to something more satisfying. See, this is, again, nothing Christian. Just, uh, this is just an author kind of going through the different research that has come out on the effects of the self-esteem movement, which really blossomed in the 70s and has influenced all of us talking about it doesn't work because in the end what happens is this you actually have to be awesome and you live in fear of going what if I'm not and when you make a mistake your awesomeness has this is like a balloon that has been popped and you feel this devastating episode of unawesomeness or here's how author New York Times best-selling author pastor Tim Keller says it in one of his books, he says this, talking about kind of the current just culture we're in, this is a new weight on the soul put there by modernity. Success or failure is now seen as the individual's responsibility alone. Our culture tells us that we have the power to create ourselves, and that puts the emphasis on independence and self-reliance. But it also means that society adulates winners and despises losers, showing contempt for weakness. You see, if everything is about how great you are, if the answer to your shame, your guilt, your inadequacy, your failure is to tell you how awesome you are, how much worth you have, how much value you have, how great you are, the problem is, the problem is this. It makes it so that if you are weak or you do struggle, there's no room for that. It makes it so that you have to be awesome. Here's what it's like. It's like pulling weeds. You know, if you pull out a weed, listen, it works for a minute. Your garden looks a little better. Your grass looks a little better. Your flower beds look a little better, but it's still deep in there and it comes back and you got to pull it again. This is why we go in cycles. This is why, actually, I preached on this a couple years ago. I thought it was kind of interesting. On, um, there was a movie that was a spinoff of Rocky, uh, Creed. And it's, uh, if you didn't see it, it's a great movie. And, the, and, and his kind of whole thing is, I have to prove that I'm enough. So I've got to win. I've got to prove that I'm enough. And you see this battle, this fight to prove his worth, to prove that he's enough. And he wins, so he proves it. But guess what, guys? There's a sequel coming out. And in the trailer, she says to him, you got to prove it again? He's like, yes, I have to prove it again. And I'm paraphrasing, but he, I've got to prove that I'm enough. See, this is what happens. If the answer, if the answer to your shame, your guilt, your feelings of failure and inadequacy is no, you are great, you are awesome, you do have worth, you do have value, you can do it, then you are stuck in a cycle. And if you fail, 
you experience your weakness, and it can be devastating. But here's what this new identity changes. What if there's no weight on you to prove how great you are? What if you don't have to perform? What if you don't have to make a name for yourself or show that you have worth or show that you have value? What if your worth, your value, has nothing to do with what you do? What if it's not based on what you do or what you achieve or what you earn or how awesome you are or how much you can do it? What if it's something that's been given to you instead? Then you're free. As Tim Keller says, then you're not living under a weight that crushes you and forces us to actually live up to being great or awesome. You, here's what it means. You can be weak. You can say, I'm not enough. This is too much for me. You can actually own that. You can actually be humble, by the way. And when people criticize you or offer comments on your performance in some way, you can take that because it's not devastating. Look, everybody knows the caricature of the, the young millennial that basically can't receive any criticism. And it's like, if you say anything to them, they like, no, 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 you can only tell me I'm awesome. Everybody knows kind of the caricature of that, right? And I don't know if I've ever met anyone like that, but we all wrestle with, man, don't, don't criticize me in any way. It's because we're fighting for an identity that's based on what I do. And if I receive criticism, it's not just criticism. It's not just feedback. It's an assault on my identity. It's an assault on my worth. It's an assault on my value. And so I feel very hypersensitive to that. But if your identity is not based on what you do at all, then you're free. You can be humble. You can be honest. You can rest without having to fight to show how great you are, how awesome you are. And I'm not saying to other people, I'm even saying to yourself, probably mostly to yourself. You can be free from what others think, but maybe more importantly, you can be free from what you think. See, that's one of the problems of saying it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks, it matters what you think. Come on. If you're anything like I am, man, you know you're your biggest critic. So who cares if I'm free from what other people think? I need to be free from what I think. I need to be free from my own opinions of myself and my own evaluations of myself, which only happens when my identity is not based on anything that I do at all, but based on something that's been done for me, based on something I've received like a child, like a baby. This is how this new identity changes our life Imagine if that starts to get into your life. I mean, seriously, imagine the freedom of, I don't need to fight for my worth, my value anymore. But you are just free. So how do you get that? How do you get that new identity that Jesus says that he brings? How, how do you get it? Nicodemus asks him these questions. He says, what are you talking about? How do, how do, I, how do I get born again? What does that even mean? How, how could that happen? If you get this new identity into your life, it changes everything. I gave you one example of our worth and our value, but it begins to change everything from the inside out. And Jesus tells Nicodemus how to receive this new identity. Here's what he says. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Saying, man, you've, you've, been a, you've studied the Bible, you're a teacher and you still don't get these truths. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. This can be a difficult thing to hear. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He's saying, if you can't get kind of the basics, it'd be even harder to understand more. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. He's talking about himself, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now here's what he says. Here's how you get this new identity, this born-againness, this experience of a different identity that brings power and joy into our life. First thing he says is you come to him, whoever you are. He says, whoever believes in him. Now this whoever is important. 
Because it can be encouraging, but it might also need to be a little insulting. See, to say to Nicodemus, and, and maybe this is you, if you're a religious person, maybe you probably, most people don't consider themselves a religious person, but if you're somebody that's been around the church, if you're somebody that's read the Bible, if you're somebody that's maybe even been a teacher in some ways of the Bible, this is, this is who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to Nicodemus, this leader, and Jesus says, whoever believes. He's saying, Nicodemus, there's some things that you're missing. Yes, you're religious. Yes, you know the Bible. Yes, you're a leader, but there's some things that you're in the dark about. And sometimes, I think maybe even oftentimes, most times, it's the people that have grown up in the church, the people that are the most familiar with the things of God and religion that actually miss this. So whoever, meaning if you are a person of church background and experience, you need this. But whoever can be an encouraging message as well because it says, if you are somebody that looks at yourself, which people feel this, and maybe this is you, if you're somebody that looks at your life and says, I can't come to God. I can't come to God. I've got, I've got too much messed up in my life. Or maybe once I figure this out, then I can talk with God. Maybe once I figure these issues out, maybe once I'm able to kind of resolve stuff from my divorce, or maybe once I'm able to kind of stop these certain sins, or maybe once I'm able to kind of care enough about God, or care enough about spiritual things, or once I can be more like my friend that does, once I'm there, then, and Jesus says, whoever, whether you are the most religious person like Nicodemus or you are the furthest that you feel from God that there is, Jesus says, whoever, whoever, come to me. That's the first important thing that if we want to receive this identity that can change our lives is we need to see you all qualify. I qualify, you qualify, every single one of us qualify and we are called to come to him. But, but second is this. This is how we get this new identity, this power that can change our lives. He says, believe. It says, whoever believes, whoever believes, whoever, whoever believes in me, it says, as Moses lifted up the son of as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, this is important, this, this phrase, whoever believes in him, and the idea of Jesus being lifted up. See, l- let me explain something to you. Whenever, you're, whenever the counsel that you receive to deal with whatever issue it may be in your life, feelings of worth and inadequacy, or really whatever issue that you might struggle with, when, when the counsel that you receive, I need you to hear me on this. When the counsel that you receive is continually something like this, you know it's not from God. When the counsel that you receive is continually to focus on yourself, you know for a fact that's not coming from God. Whenever the counsel that you receive to deal with the issues that you have in your life is something like self-esteem, Self-acceptance, self-confidence, self-compassion, self-worth, or believe in yourself, trust yourself, be true to yourself, love yourself, forgive yourself. Whenever the messages that you hear are anything like this, you can be certain that's not from God. Because it is saying, here's what you need, yourself. Here is what you most need, yourself. Listen to me, especially those of you that are Christians. If you're not Christians, I'm I'm trying to help you understand that there's something better than this, but if you're Christians, just listen to me on a second. There's not one time in the Bible any of this is said. Think about that. If you listen to everything around us, and you are intentional about hearing, what you will hear is that our big problem is our lack of self-acceptance, self-confidence, self-worth, self-esteem. If you listen, it would seem this is our big problem. And thus the solution is this. But look, not once, not once does anybody ever come to Jesus and Jesus says, Nicodemus, you just need to trust in yourself. Not once does one of the disciples come to Jesus struggling with an issue and Jesus says, you need to love yourself. 
Not once does a a sinner far from God fall at Jesus' feet and he says to them, you just need more self-acceptance. Not once is there a message, anything even remotely close to this. Because the answer is not ourselves. And it will keep you in a feedback loop of it working for a minute and then needing more, it working for a minute and then needing more, it working because if the answer is yourself, then the pro- if the problem is yourself, but the answer is yourself, you're stuck with yourself. But what happens is this. You see, the gospel, the good news, the power of God that, that changes everything is not The good news that Jesus brings, the good news that the Bible talks about is not that you're awesome. It's not that you're worthy. It's not that you're enough. The good news, the gospel is this. You are worse than you think you are. And I am worse than I think I am, but he is so much better than you could ever imagine. You see, the good news is this. It's that we are sinners, that we are far from God that we have rebelled against God, that we are weak. Look, little kids learn to sing this song. We are weak, but he is strong. If that song was rewritten today, it would be, I am strong, I am strong. But it's we are weak, he is strong. We are sinful, he is gracious. We are lost and he comes to find us. You see, the good news is we're worse than we think we are. But Jesus has pursued us and loved us, and given us grace. This is where Jesus brings up the story of Moses. See, in the desert, and I don't have time to go into all of this, but, but in the desert, God's people, Israel, as they left Egypt out of slavery, and they're in the desert wandering for 40 years because of their sin and their rebellion, God sends serpents to bite them as punishment for their wickedness against God. They are sinful beings in need of help. But God also provides a way of salvation. He tells Moses to grab a bronze snake and put it up on a staff, and anyone that looks to it will be saved. And Jesus says, that's actually talking about the salvation that I bring. He says, you know what you need in the middle of your trouble? You know what you need to get a new identity that brings power and joy into your life? It is not believe in yourself. It is believe in me. It is not trust in yourself, it is trust in me. It is not look to yourself, it is look to me. Let me be lifted up in your life, and when your eyes are on me, you experience salvation. Now let me tell you something. This is so much more powerful than than an identity that is based just on us. Because you know what it means? It means on your worst day, on your worst day, When you say, I'm not enough, I'm not good, I just did something that I feel totally got rid of any worth or value I thought I had, I just did something that totally eliminated any feelings of, I am a good mom, I am a good dad, I am a good worker, I just lied, I just cheated, I just stole, I just yelled at my kids, I just, whatever it is that you go, man, I, this is my worst day, it doesn't define you. Because in that moment, If you just tell yourself, no, it is okay, I am good, you know it's not true. But on your worst day, you can look up to the cross where Jesus is and say, that's what defines me. It's not anything that I do. It's not anything that I've earned. It's something's been done for me. Something's been given to me. Listen, I tell my kids this all the time when they're struggling with something, when they've had a bad day. And meaning they've been bad, not like school was hard or something. They've been bad. I don't tell them, you're not bad. You're a great little kid. You know what I tell them? I tell them, you're worse than you think you are. No, I don't say that to them. (laughs) But I could. What I say to them is this. I say, it doesn't matter how bad you are. I love you. And it doesn't matter how good you are. I love you. You see, I'm telling them it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with me. And that's just a small picture. For you parents, you know that our, our kind of parenthood to our kids is, is just a small picture of what God is saying here. But it's the same thing that we need. 
God doesn't say, I love you because you're awesome. I died for you because you're worth it. He doesn't say that. He says, you're a sinner dying and hopeless without me, but I love you. Now, you know what that means? That can't be shaken because that's an identity built in grace. And grace means you didn't do anything good or bad to earn it, which means it doesn't matter how good or bad you are on a particular day because the identity was given to you in grace in the first place. If you are loved or you are special or you have value because you're great, then you have to be great to keep that value. But if you are loved, because you're loved by a gracious God, then it doesn't matter where you are. Look, this is in the, think about the songs that we sing. Think about the songs we sing. We do not say, I am amazing, thank you, Jesus. I was so special that you died for me, thank you, Jesus. What do we sing? One of the most famous songs that there is, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved an awesome person like me, that saved a wretch like me, or how deep the Father's love for us. And it, it goes on, says, that would make a wretch his treasure. You see, the gospel, the good news that we sing in all of our songs over and over again is not, you are so amazing and so awesome and so special. It's we are worse than we think we are, but our identity has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with a good God that loved us and gave us grace. That is an identity that cannot be shaken then. Listen, I want you to know this. You have an identity, if you're a Christian, that cannot be changed no matter how good or bad you are. That gives you a deep humility. You have no right to be self-righteous. You have no right to be self-righteous because you can't say, I'm special, God loves me because look what I've done. You are humbled. And yet you are able to experience not a self-pity. and a, The answer isn't a low self-esteem. or a, It's just you are able to have a deep humility and at the same time a deep poise. Because you've been given stability. You've been given identity that's based in grace. It's been received, not earned. This is why Jesus says, look at me on the cross when he's lifted up, when he's glorified. Look, here's the answer. Stop looking at yourself, look at him. Stop believing in yourself, believe in him, Jesus says. Stop trusting in yourself, trust in him. When that happens, you have the power that begins to reshape your world and reshape your life. You, you get a freedom. Let me, let me close with this. There's a, there's a book uh, called The Narcissism Epidemic. It's not a Christian book. It's written by two psychologists that have studied kind of the effect of self-esteem movement and, and, and kind of how that has cultivated a culture of narcissism and all this stuff in our culture. Not, again, not a Christian book, but has kind of explored all the research on this. And one of the interesting things they say that really matches up with this, I'll just close with this. They say, it would be better for everyone not to, to concentrate on self-feelings, positive or negative. So stop thinking about how great you are or how bad you are. Don't think about self-feelings. Instead, focus on life, your relationship with others, your work, or the beauty of the natural world. Think about the deepest joy that you experience in life. It doesn't typically come from thinking about how great you are. Think about the deepest joy that you experience in life. It never comes from thinking how great you are. Now let me take this even a step further from them from what John is saying here. You see, when you go to the mountains, when you go to the mountains and you look out and you stare at something bigger than you, more beautiful than you, grander than you, more powerful than you, what happens? You feel rest. You feel peace. You feel joy. Many people even say, man, it's a spiritual kind of experience. But you see, what, what John says here, is the answer that gives you the deepest freedom in life, the deepest joy in life, the deepest rest in life, is when you stare at Jesus and all his glory there. See, the authors of this book say, stop looking at yourself. Instead, the deepest joy comes when you stop thinking about how great you are and look at other things. And again, John says, yes, let me go even further than just your friends or your life. 
Look at what is most glorious. Look at what is most powerful. You look at that. You look at Jesus on the cross dying for his enemies and saying, you're mine now. You look at Jesus saying, you're my child. And you can receive something that you didn't earn. That begins to change your identity. That begins to change your life. And you get to experience what Jesus said. You get to enter the kingdom of God. You get to see the kingdom of God. You get to experience eternal life, which isn't just heaven. It's life here, a quality, a fullness of life. Here's what this means. It means when you're struggling. It means when you're feeling these feelings, and it's going to come. It might come later today. It might come tomorrow when work is difficult. When this happens, don't focus on yourself. Don't tell yourself how okay you are and how great you are. Do exactly what Jesus says, which is, Direct your eyes to him. Say, Jesus, help me to see again who you are and what you've done for me. Jesus, help me once again to remember that my identity is based on grace. I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to earn anything. You gave me something that I could never earn. You called me your child. You adopted me. You called me. You redeemed me. You washed me. You cleansed me. You saved me. You regenerated me. You made me. You birthed me. That gives me any value and worth I could ever want. And it shows me who you are. That's what this means. And when we come to take communion and sing, this is what we focus on. We remember what Jesus did. We remember his body broken and his blood shed. Not because of how great we are, but because of how great he is. We look to him and say, thank you that you would cleanse me and change me and make me yours. And we sing songs in worship of him, not of ourselves. We say, look who you are. And so I invite you to, as you come and take communion and as you sing, even now, to remove the focus off yourself and to see him again. And ask him to let that reshape you today. Father, thank you that you give to us an identity that we could never earn. Thank you that we don't have to fight for our worth or our value. We don't have to earn it. It's not inherent in us, but you give to us something from you by uniting us to yourself. Jesus, thank you for uniting us to yourself, for giving us your worth, giving us your value, giving us your cleansing and sanctification. Thank you for the gift that you give to us that we can receive and rest in, that you make us your kids. I pray that you would help us to believe this in a deeper way and it would have effects and ramifications that go from this room. In your name, Jesus, we pray.